0: Chapter 10, Part 3 of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann How I Found Livingston Travels, to Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston. By Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter ten, part three. To Mura Yukonongo. Wednesday, October fourth, saw us travelling to the Gombe River, which is four hours fifteen minutes march from Manyara. We had barely left the waving cornfields of my friend Mamanyara before we came in sight of a herd of noble zebra. Two hours afterwards we had entered a grand and noble expanse of parkland, whose glorious magnificence and vastness of prospect, with a far-stretching carpet of verdure, darkly flecked here and there by miniature clumps of jungle, with spreading trees growing here and there, was certainly one of the finest scenes to be seen in Africa, added to which, as I surmounted one of the numerous small knolls, I saw herds after herds of buffalo and zebra, giraffe and antelope, which sent the blood coursing through my veins in the excitement of the moment, as when I first landed on African soil. We crept along the plain noiselessly to our camp on the banks of the sluggish waters of the Gombe. Here at last was the hunter's paradise. How petty and insignificant appeared my hunts after small antelope and wild boar. What a foolish waste of energies those long walks through damp grasses and through thorny jungles. Did I not well remember my first bitter experience in African jungles, when in the maritime region? But this! Where is a nobleman's park that can match this scene? Here is a soft, velvety expanse of young grass, grateful shade under those spreading clumps, herds of large and varied game, browsing within easy rifle range. Surely I must feel amply compensated now for the long southern detour I've made when such a prospect as this opens to view. No thorny jungles and rank-smelling swamps are here to daunt the hunter and to sicken his aspirations after true sport. No hunter could aspire after a nobler field to display his prowess. Having settled the position of the camp, which overlooked one of the pools found in the depression of the Gombe Creek, I took my double-barreled smoothbore and sauntered off to the parkland. Emerging from behind a clump, three fine, plump springbok were seen browsing on the young grass, just within one hundred yards. I knelt down and fired. One unfortunate antelope bounded upward instinctively and fell dead. Its companions sprang high into the air, taking leaps about twelve feet in length, as if they were quadrupeds practicing gymnastics, and away they vanished, rising up like India rubber balls, until a knoll hid them from view. My success was held with loud shouts by the soldiers, who came running out from the camp as soon as they heard the reverberation of the gun, and my gun-bearer had his knife at the beast's throat, uttering a fervent bismillah as he almost severed the head from the body. Hunters were now directed to proceed east and north to procure meat, because in each caravan it generally happens that there are fundi, whose special trade it is to hunt for meat for the camp. Some of these are experts in stalking, but often find themselves in dangerous positions owing to the near approach necessary before they can fire their most inaccurate weapons with any certainty after luncheon consisting of springbok steak hot corn cake and a cup of delicious mocha coffee i strolled towards the southwest accompanied by kalulu and mishwara two boy gun bearers the tiny purposilla started up like rabbits from me as i stole along through the underbrush the honey bird hopped from tree to tree chirping its call as if it thought I was seeking the little sweet treasure the hiding-place of which it only knew. But no, I neither desired purpuricilla nor the honey. I was on the search for something great this day. Keen-eyed fish-eagles and bustards poised on trees above the sinuous Gombe thought, and probably with good reason, that I was after them, judging by the ready flight with which both species disappeared as they sighted my approach. Ah, oh, no, nothing but hartebeest zebra, giraffe, eland, and buffalo this day. After following the Gombe's course for about a mile, delighting my eyes with long looks at the broad and lengthy reaches of water to which I was so long a stranger, I came upon a scene which delighted the innermost recesses of my soul. Five, six, seven, eight, ten zebras, switching their beautiful striped bodies and biting one another, within about one hundred and fifty yards. The scene was so pretty, so romantic, never did I so thoroughly realize that I was in Central Africa. I felt momentarily proud that I owned such a vast domain, inhabited with such noble beasts. Here I possessed, within reach of a leaden ball, any one I chose of those beautiful animals, the pride of the African forests. It was at my option to shoot any of them. Mine they were, without money or without price. Yet, knowing this, twice I dropped my rifle, loath to wound the royal beasts. But crack! And a royal one was on his back, battling the air with his legs. Ah, it was such a pity. But hasten, draw the keen, sharp-edged knife across the beautiful stripes which fold around the throat, and, what an ugly gash! It is done, and I have a superb animal at my feet. Hurrah! I shall taste of Yukonongo zebra to-night. I thought a spring buck and zebra enough for one day's sport, especially after a long march. The Gombe, a large stretch of deep water, winding in and out of green groves, calm, placid, with lotus leaves lightly resting on its surface. All pretty, picturesque peaceful as a summer stream, looked very inviting for a bath. I sought out the most shady spot under a wide-spreading mimosa, from which the ground sloped smooth as a lawn, to the still, clear water. I ventured to undress, and had already stepped into my ankles in the water, and had brought my hands together for a glorious dive, when my attention was attracted by an enormously long body which shot into view occupying the spot beneath the surface which I was about to explore by a header. Great heavens, it was a crocodile! I sprang backward instinctively, and this proved my salvation, for the monster turned away with the most disappointed look, and I was left to congratulate myself upon my narrow escape from his jaws, and to register a vow never to be tempted again by the treacherous calm of an African river. As soon as I had dressed, I turned away from the now repulsive aspect of the stream. In strolling through the jungle, towards my camp, I detected the forms of two natives looking sharply about them, and, after bidding my young attendants to preserve perfect quiet, I crept on towards them and, by the aid of a thick clump of underbrush, managed to arrive within a few feet of the natives, undetected. Their mere presence in the immense forest, unexplained, was a cause of uneasiness in the then disturbed state of the country, and my intention was to show myself suddenly to them and note its effect, which, if it betokened anything hostile to the expedition, could without difficulty be settled at once with the aid of my double-barreled smooth-bore. As I arrived on one side of this bush, the two suspicious-looking natives arrived on the other side, and we were separated by only a few feet. I made a bound, and we were face to face. The natives cast a glance at the sudden figure of a white man, and seemed petrified for a moment. But then, recovering themselves, they shrieked out, "'Bana-bana, you don't know us. We are Wakonongo." who came to your camp to accompany you to Murera, and we are looking for honey oh to be sure you are the wakanongo yes yes ah uh, it is all right now i thought you might be ugaruga so the two parties instead of being on hostile terms with each other burst out laughing the wakanongo enjoyed it very much and laughed heartily as they proceeded on their way to search for the wild honey on a piece of bark they carried a little fire "'with which they smoked the bees out from their nests "'in the great matunda trees. "'The adventures of the day were over. "'The azure sky had changed to a dead gray. "'The moon was appearing just over the trees. "'The water of the Gombe was like a silver belt. "'Horse frogs bellowed their notes loudly by the margin of the creek. "'The fish-eagles uttered their dirge-like cries "'as they were perched high on the tallest trees.' Elans snorted their warning to the herds in the forest. Stealthy forms of the carnivore stole through the dark woods outside of our camp. Within the high enclosure of bush and thorn, which we had raised about our camp, all was jollity, laughter, and radiant, genial comfort. Around every campfire dark forms of men were seen squatted. One man gnawed at a luscious bone, another sucked the rich marrow in a zebra-leg bone. Another turned the stick, garnished with huge kebabs, to the bright blaze. Another held a large rib over the flame. There were others, busy stirring industriously great black potfuls of ugali, and watching anxiously the meat simmering and the soup bubbling, while the firelight flickered and danced bravely, and cast a bright glow over the naked forms of the men and gave a crimson tinge to the tall tent that rose in the center of the camp, like a temple to some mysterious god. The fires cast their reflections upon the massive arms of the trees as they branched over our camp, and, in the dark gloom of their foliage, the most fantastic shadows were visible. Altogether it was a wild, romantic, and impressive scene, but little wrecked my men for shadows and moonlight for crimson tents, and temple-like tents. They were all busy relating their various experiences, and gorging themselves with the rich meats our guns had obtained for us. One was telling how he had stalked a wild boar, and the furious onset the wounded animal made on him, causing him to drop his gun, and climb a tree, and the terrible grunt of the beast he well remembered, and the whole welkin rang with the peals of laughter which his mimic powers evoked. Another had shot a buffalo calf, and another had bagged a hartebeest The Wakanongo related their laughable recounter with me in the woods, and were lavish in their description of the stores of honey to be found in the woods, and all this time Selim and his youthful subs were trying their sharp teeth on the meat of a young pig which one of the hunters had shot, but which nobody else would eat because of the Mohammedan aversion to pig." which they had acquired during their transformation from negro savagery to the useful docility of the Zanzibar freedman. We halted the two following days and made frequent raids on the herds of this fine country. The first day I was fairly successful again in the sport. I bagged a couple of antelopes, a kudu, a streptocereus, with fine twisting horns, and a polybuck, a melimphus. A reddish-brown animal standing about three and a half feet with broad posteriors. I might have succeeded in getting dozens of animals had I any of those accurate heavy rifles manufactured by Lancaster, Riley, or Blissard, whose every shot tells, but my weapons, save my light smoothbore, were unfit for African game. My weapons were more for men. With the Winchester rifle and the Star's carbine, I was able to hit anything within two hundred yards, but the animals, though wounded, invariably managed to escape the knife, until I was disgusted with the pea bullets. What is wanted for this country is a heavy boar, number ten or twelve is the real bone crusher, that will drop every animal shot in its tracks, by which all fatigue and disappointment are avoided several times during these two days was i disappointed after most laborious stalking and creeping along the ground once i came suddenly upon eland while i had a winchester rifle in my hand the eland and myself mutually astonished at not more than twenty-five yards apart i fired at its chest and bullet true to its aim sped far into the eternal parts and the blood spouted from the wound in a few minutes he was far away and I was too much disappointed to follow him. All love of the chase seemed to be dying away before these several mishaps. What were two antelopes for one day's sport to the thousands that browsed over the plain? The animals taken to camp during our 3 days' sport were two buffaloes, two wild boar, three hartebeest one zebra, and one pala besides which were shot eight guinea-fowls, three florican, two fish-eagles, one pelican, and one of the men caught a couple of large silorous fish. In the meantime the people had cut, sliced, and dried this bounteous store of meat for our transit through the long wilderness before us. Saturday, the 7th of October, we broke up camp, to the great regret of the meat-loving, gourmandizing wangwana. They delegated Bombay early in the morning to speak to me, and entreat of me to stop one day longer. It was ever the case they had always an unconquerable aversion to work when in the presence of meat. Bombay was well scolded for bearing any such request to me after two days' rest, during which time they had been filled to repletion with meat, and Bombay was by no means in the best humor. Flesh-pots full of meat were far more to his taste than a constant tramping and its consequent fatigues. I saw his face settle into sulky ugliness, and his great nether-lip hanging down limp, which meant, as if expressed in so many words, "'Well, get them to move yourself, you wicked hard man. I shall not help you.' An ominous silence followed my order to the curangose to sound the horn, and the usual singing and chanting were not heard. The men turned sullenly to their bells, and Asmani, the gigantic guide, Arfundi, was heard grumblingly to say he was sorry he had engaged to guide me to the Tanganyika. However they started, though reluctantly. I stayed behind with my gun-bearers to drive the stragglers on. In about half an hour I sighted the caravan at a dead stop, with the bells thrown on the ground, and the men standing in groups conversing angrily and excitedly. Taking my double-barreled gun from Salim's shoulder, I selected a dozen charges of buckshot, and slipping two of them into the barrels, and adjusting my revolvers in order for handiwork, I walked on towards them. I noticed that the men seized their guns as I advanced when within thirty yards of the groups I discovered the heads of two men appear above an ant hill on my left, with the barrels of their guns carelessly pointed toward the road. I halted, threw the barrel of my gun into the hollow with the left hand, and then, taking a deliberate aim at them, threatened to blow their heads off if they did not come forward to talk to me. These two men were, Gigantic Asmani and his sworn companion Mabruki, the guides of Sheikh bin Nisib. As it was dangerous not to comply with such an order, they presently came, but, keeping my eye on Asmani, I saw him move his fingers to the trigger of his gun, and bring his gun to a ready. Again I lifted my gun, and threatened him with instant death if he did not drop his gun. Asmani came on in a sidelong way with a smirking smile on his face, but in his eyes shone the lurid light of murder as plainly as ever it shone in a villain's eyes. My sneaked to my rear, deliberately putting powder in the pan of his musket, but sweeping the gun sharply around, I planted the muzzle of it at about two feet from his wicked-looking face, and ordered him to drop his gun instantly. He let it fall from his hand quickly, and giving him a vigorous poke in the breast with my gun, which sent him reeling away a few feet from me, I faced round to Asmane, and ordered him to put his gun down, accompanying it with nervous movement of my gun, pressing gently on the trigger at the same time. Never was a man nearer his death than was Asmani during those few moments. I was reluctant to shed his blood, and I was willing to try all possible means of avoiding doing so. But if I did not succeed in cowing this ruffian, authority was at an end. The truth was, they feared to proceed further on the road, and the only possible way of inducing them to move was by an overpowering force, an exercise of my power and will in this instance, even though he might pay the penalty of his disobedience with his death. As I was beginning to feel that as Manny had passed his last moment on earth, as he was lifting his gun to his shoulder, a form came up from behind him and swept his gun aside with an impatient nervous movement. And I heard Mabruki Burton say in horror-struck accents, "'Man, how dare you point your gun at the master!' Mabruki then threw himself at my feet and endeavored to kiss them and entreated me not to punish him. It was all over now, he said. There will be no more quarrelling. They will go as far as the Tanganyika without any more noise, and Inshallah, said he, we shall find the old Masunga at Ujiji. Speak, men, freedmen, shall we not? Shall we not go to the Tanganyika without any more trouble? Tell the master with one voice. Aiwala, Aiwala, Manayango, Hamuno, Meneno, Magini which literally translated means, Yes, by God, yes, by God, my master, there are no other words, said each man loudly. Ask the master's pardon, man, or go thy way, said Mabruki peremptorily to Asmani, which Asmani did to the gratification of us all. It remained only for me to extend a general pardon to all except to Bombay and Umbari, the instigators of the mutiny, which was now happily quelled for bombay could have by a word as my captain nipped all manifestation of bad temper at the outset had he been so disposed but no bombay was more averse to marching than the cowardliest of his fellows not because he was cowardly but because he loved indolence again the word was given to march and each man with astonishing alacrity seized his load, and filed off quickly, out of sight. End of chapter 10, part 3